Hello, Internet. It's me, Veronica Belmont, host of IRL. Remember all the fun we had in season one? Previously on IRL. How are you today? Hello, Terrence. Aren't you just the cutest little spy I ever did see? Free cookies. Free cookies. You're welcome. Thank you. I say we follow them. Let's let's do it. These cyber weapons are often in the hands of dum-dums who are looking for targets of opportunity. In fact, I put stickers on my desktop screen. You never know if someone's watching. That sounds really paranoid. It takes energy to type out a, a thoughtful opinion. And I think that's why a lot of people are so nasty, because it's easier just to, to type a two-word insult. We had a great time putting that season together, and boy, did you give it a listen. Collectively, you downloaded the show more than one million times. That is absolutely incredible. Thank you for listening. So, yay, we're working on the second season. And while it isn't quite ready for launch, I wanted to check in with you and let you know about a few things. For starters, there's something else launching over at Mozilla HQ right now. It's Firefox. A brand new, totally retooled browser has just launched, and if you're up for it, it's ready for you to take it out for a spin. You'll hear more about it a little later. But before we get to that, we thought, since Firefox is getting an update, why can't IRL get an update as well? After all, some of the stories in our first season have really evolved since they were first published. All right, let's get to it then. This is IRL. Online life is real life. An original podcast from Mozilla. Looks like a baby. Awful. You'd you'd like it to say, looks like a baby. Awful? Yes, thank you. That is going to look really beautiful on a cake. We featured the Troll Cakes Bakery and Detective Agency in our fourth episode. How it works is pretty simple. If someone's trolled you and you want to get back at them, you send them a cake with the troll's own words printed on it in edible letters. Kat Thek is the baker and detective. This is her talking about the effort she puts into baking them. I want it to be the best cake you've ever gotten in the mail. Because if you get a lousy cake in the mail, if you get like a, you know, like something that has salt instead of sugar, it feels like we're playing dirty there. But if you get a really nice cake, there's something obnoxiously high road about it. The cake we featured in the episode went to a lady troll. It said, looks like a baby, awful. We tried to reach the troll for a reaction, and we never heard from her. But we actually sent two troll cakes that day. A second backup troll cake went to Tianzong Jiang. He's in San Jose. I was abroad, and I arrived back home uh, one week after the package arrived. And I opened it and discovered it was... A troll cake. So tell me about that unboxing. Uh, It was kind of bizarre. So (laughs) I was like, okay, this package is kind of weird. Where does it come from? Who sent it to me? Um, And so I look at the words on the cake. And I was like, yeah, I remember this. Do you remember what what the cake said? The cake says, you're too obsessed with the way you look. Like, I'm curious, like, why was that quote selected? Because it's, it's just uh, really, really random. So you don't think that saying you are too obsessed with the way you look would be hurtful to the person receiving it? Um, I was just being funny and, and joking. That, that, that's all. Uh, I didn't mean to hurt, hurt anybody with a quote. But I'm. you have to understand it's the internet. It Basically, you're standing in front of a huge crowd of millions mm-hmm. where everyone 
can, you know, tell you what they think. Uh, you know, obviously she didn't think it was a joke because she found it hurtful yes. enough that she sent you a troll cake. Yes. You so you think that the person, the the Instagrammer, sent me the troll cake? Mm-hmm. One second, I was a so I was a troll, I guess. Huh? How does that make you feel? I don't feel anything. I don't feel like I was a troll. You know, I like that quote. You know, because she is. I guess the whole thing it felt funny more than anything now, and and she blocked me, right? I I got my punishment, <laughs> but I, I'm still very curious how she has how she's feeling. And I wrote her, I think, but she didn't respond. Yeah. Have you ever been trolled? In this way, no. <laughs> um, I I came from a different culture, so it took me some time to understand exactly what troll is, really. Why do you think people troll? It's a release. It's funny. It's people are bored, you know. Just express all your dissatisfactions that you encounter in life, and yeah. So, since you were blocked by the Instagrammer, is there anything that you would want to say to her now after the fact? I want to tell her that I really like her content uh, and, and videos. That's all. That's it. You know, I'm not a creeper online who 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 talk mean things to her. Um, so I want to apologize, I guess. But I still wish that I could see her stuff because they can serve as inspirations to to me. But uh, I'm I was surprised when I received the cake. So in the end, did you did you actually eat the cake, or had it been sitting around too long waiting for you to open it? I wanted to preserve it. I took you know some pictures and put it in a fridge. But I think uh, the family tossed it out eventually. Ugh. Way to ruin a perfectly good cake, Tianzong. I'm hoping that you kind of sort of maybe learn something about online civility. Your tastes in booze are the same as mine, red wine and bourbon. That's exactly um, right. Well, of course it's right. I'm a detective. Um, it took me about four seconds to get your social security number. Oh, which which starts which starts you can bleep that i have your brother's identity i have your husband's identity i have everywhere you've ever lived i have where you're living right now that's detective steven rombaum from our data broker episode showing me just how easy it is for a guy like him to dig up data about a host like me what we couldn't know then is that at the same time a huge data theft was taking place at one of america's major credit reporting companies it wasn't until September, though, that Equifax told us it had been breached over the summer. That online thieves stole the personal data of at least 143 million Americans. That's more than half of the country's total adult population. A company like Equifax that has sensitive personal information on most Americans should have the best data security in the industry, and instead, it has the worst. That's U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's laying into former Equifax CEO Richard Smith at a public hearing in October. But even as these politicians took turns giving the CEO a piece of America's mind, the real hero that day was actually sitting quietly behind him in the public gallery. Hi, my name is Amanda Warner. You might know me better as the Monopoly man who trolled the Equifax CEO at his Senate hearing in October. 
That's right, Mr. Monopoly, or good old Rich Uncle Pennybags, the cartoon figure from one of our most beloved and reviled childhood board games, showed up that day to protest the company who had taken our data for granted. So basically, I was in a black tuxedo, a white dress shirt, had a bright red bow tie, um, and was wearing a white kind of handlebar mustache uh, with a top hat and a monocle. And I heard something about you wiping your forehead with a $100 bill. That's really baller. <laughs> yeah, I had some uh, oversized novelty $100 bills with me and, and used them both as a pocket square and as a handkerchief as needed. And so some people are, are calling it cosplay, not not cosplay, like dressing up like knights and, you know, the stuff that I do at Dragon Con, but cosplay. So what caused you to get into character for this Equifax hearing? So I dressed up as the Monopoly man to call attention to Equifax and Wells Fargo's use of forced arbitration as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And basically what that means is um, they bury these fine print rip-off clauses deep in their contracts so that if consumers have a dispute with them, we can't join together in court like we normally would. We have to instead go through this secret arbitration system where they decide the firm who um, chooses the outcome of the case, what rules apply. It's really a system that's stacked against us. So on top of having all of our identities exposed, there is this added insult to injury. Exactly, where we just can't do anything uh, to actually get the money back or to get compensated for the data breach. So Equifax has since removed that clause from their terms and conditions, though, right? Uh, How common is this practice? That's what was really interesting to us about the the reaction to Equifax. Um, you know, obviously after the data breach, Equifax started pushing people toward this website where they had uh, an identity protection product that they were trying to sell us. Um, and that's when people noticed that they were using the folks who have been working on this for a long time. But what was interesting to us is that these clauses are everywhere. It is not just Equifax. So what was the CEO saying while you were standing there holding on to your monocle in the peanut gallery? He ended up blaming the data breach essentially on one employee, um, which I think is just really appalling, not only that he's not taking leadership uh, as being the CEO of Equifax, but also just trying to say that their entire security apparatus relies on one person. I mean, clearly Mm -hmm. there are bigger problems there. We did an entire episode on on data brokers and how vulnerable and also profitable our online data is to companies like Equifax. How much do you think this breach has made people more aware of these practices? I think it's really raised public awareness in an important way. I mean, obviously, you know, our system of data in this country is very outdated. So I'm glad that people are more aware of this and hopefully watching their data more closely. But unfortunately, because this isn't a system that, you know, we actually get to choose ourselves, I think we do need some serious congressional action here to change the way that we are protecting our identities moving forward, especially now that the majority of the country has had their data exposed in a way that's going to leave them vulnerable for the rest of their lives. Amanda Werner is a consumer rights advocate, activist, and sometimes board game character. In November, Equifax told shareholders the company is facing over 240 class action lawsuits because of the data breach. It's also being investigated by more than 60 state, U.S. federal agencies, and governments from both Canada and the U.K. The company says costs related to the breach add up to just under $90 million. It doesn't know how much the class action suits will cost them. If you're worried about how the Equifax data breach could affect you, check out the show notes to this episode for tips on what you can do to protect your info and freeze your credit rating. IRLpodcast.org. 
So from the hero with the get-out-of-jail-free card, we turn to a story of a hero trying to stay out of jail. He said he accidentally found a way to stop a devastating malware attack from spreading. And after British hacker Marcus Hutchins blocked the WannaCry virus, he became an international legend. I spoke with Marcus in our episode about security and hacking. I'd feel pretty terrible if I saw something that big going on and then didn't stop it. So um, I'm not going to be some sort of uh, security Batman who's going around fighting botnets, but if there is sort of an opportunity to stop it, I will do it. A few weeks after that interview, Marcus was in Las Vegas attending DEF CON, the annual hacking conference. As the conference ended, FBI agents arrested him and whisked him away. They allege he played a role in creating a malware virus called Kronos. He's out on bail, but he can't leave the U.S. while he awaits his trial. Many in the security community wonder how Marcus could be accused of committing this crime. Marcy Wheeler has a theory. She's an independent investigative journalist, and she's been watching Marcus's trial closely. Yeah, they indicted him in July, on July 11th, and arrested him almost a month later. So they were ready. And and the most remarkable part of it is that they waited until after he spent a week in Las Vegas enjoying the hacking conference and nabbed him on the way out, I think, because had they done it at the beginning, the entire conference would have kind of shut down and focused on why they had arrested him. That's a really good point that I hadn't thought about at the time. That makes a lot of scary sense, actually, that if you get the entire hacker community riled up about something, too, might not be the best idea. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, look, the laws surrounding these issues are so nebulous and so easy for many people who work in information security to fall on the wrong side of law. And so it's really an important case for all of them. Uh, because if, 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 if um, experimenting with code becomes criminalized in the way that the FBI may be trying to do with Marcus, then a lot more information security people who don't work for big firms are going to be in trouble. So what exactly did they pick him up on? Can you tell us more about Kronos? Well, so Kronos is a, um, it steals credentials. Um, So people who are trying to uh, break into your banking, your online banking account will use it to steal your credentials and steal your money. Um, And it is a number of years old. It follows on an earlier version, which was far more widely used in the criminal community. They are accusing Marcus of committing a crime for writing code that somebody else criminalized. Why now are they going after him? It could be that they think he has information about WannaCry or Shadow Brokers, the underlying release of the files, that uh, they believe he won't turn over unless they threaten him with this criminal prosecution. Isn't this kind of the FBI's job to do this kind of work, to to leverage these opportunities? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, we'll see what happens when it becomes public, whether he really did write this malware. Um, Certainly his defense argues that he didn't and didn't have any tie to the criminal side of it. But um, if in fact it proves out that this was a a stupid minor case and that they tried to coerce him and never got any information, then I think it really will focus attention on this issue in a way that it often doesn't when the person who's being coerced is a Latino guy who lives in the hood or um, a Muslim kid who walked into 
terrorist chat room once. Um, but it is a practice that goes on over and over again. And I think there needs to be a discussion about when it is appropriate for the FBI to coerce people to get information and when it's not. And if in this case they use a, a, a criminal charge that they would never have otherwise charged um, because, because there are no American victims, then I think it becomes more problematic. Marcy Wheeler is an independent investigative journalist. Our last episode of the season tackled a tough subject. What limits, if any, should be placed on free expression on the web? The conversation was sparked by the deadly protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the fallout that came next online. On the show, Brandy Collins, Jillian York, and Anil Dash explored how far an internet company should go in policing speech online, and hate speech in particular. Many of you had many things to say about that conversation. Graham Bunton wrote in. He's the director of policy at Two Cows. Two Cows provide services like domain names, for example. I chatted with him while he was at work, so it's a little noisy in the background. I, I wasn't going to share this, but I, I suppose I can because I don't think it's a secret, is that um, Charlottesville, Virginia is home to a Two Cows office. We've got probably around 30 employees there. And so the violence in Charlottesville this summer was... Uh, not abstract for many of our employees. It was um, in their hometown. It was deep. It was personal. And so we certainly had pretty intense conversations about our responsibilities around what people are doing with the domain names on our platform. And ultimately, the place that we got to was that we can't look at domains in isolation. We need to look at what we do across all of our domains on our platform. And we have a considerable percentage of the internet now, some probably something around double digits percentage of the internet runs on our platform or the domains are on our platform. And that responsibility is, is, is quite serious. Do you ever worry that if you start banning sites like Daily Stormer that there are consequences beyond those choices? Yes, and I think we saw that pretty quickly ar around the Daily Stormer conflict uh, earlier this summer, which was that as soon as... Uh, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> Like yes, these, these, yes. <laughs> these fuckwits, these alt-right fuckwits figured out that, that registrars were turning off domain names um, for the reasons that, say, Google or GoDaddy stated. Um, we began to get all sorts of complaints about other domain names on the other side of the political spectrum using the exact same language, saying, you know, GoDaddy is taking down domains for this. Shouldn't you then take down these sites for Black Lives Matter or um, they were gay rights sites, things like that. Um, and so f for us, it was a very clear example of why we should not be wading into that discussion or, or exercising the power that we could have. It feels like uh, all the sort of garbage alt-right hate speech is like this weird, uh, awful byproduct of the industry of internet platforms. And the speech that they're coming out with is like this weird externality for these platforms that they're not at the moment responsible for. Um, because the sort of regulatory environment hasn't caught up. Hate speech is pollution. Graham Bunton is the director of policy at Two Cows and an IRL listener.
Now for a quick update to our surveillance-themed episode. Australian security researcher Troy Hunt talked about how he discovered that a toy called a cloud pet could easily be turned into a spying device. This is the kind of stuff that really bugs him. So in October, Troy cooked up a tongue-in-cheek idea to fix these kinds of problems. On his blog, he argues that Internet of Things device manufacturers should be forced to label their products the way Australian cigarette companies have to. That is, add labels to their packaging, warning consumers about the risks when they use the product. He gives a bunch of examples, but my favorite is his label recommendation for a smart feeder called PetNet. And this is an automatic pet feeder for dogs and cats, so you can remotely feed your pet. So the warning I went with with the PetNet smart feeder was we may starve your dog or cat. And then underneath that, it says you acknowledge and agree that the survival of Fido slash Fluffy is directly dependent on the reliability of your home internet connection and the availability of our online services. If an organization wants to say that, look, we're not responsible and things could still go wrong, then make that clear and then see how people feel about buying the product. And it would inevitably change buying behavior. Funny thing about Troy's funny idea, though, a few days after he wrote his post, the Australian government announced they were considering something surprisingly similar. The idea they're toying with would be to include some kind of graphic on the packaging, like a cyber kangaroo. The logo would tell you how secure a device is or isn't. That's going to be an awesome logo, too, if anyone ever does that. <laughs> I like I'm picturing a kangaroo in a hoodie. So, there's a brand new Firefox ready for downloading. The Mozilla team behind it is really proud about the work they've put into updating the browser, and they believe that what they've built makes it best in class. It's essentially a whole new Firefox. This is Mark Mayo. He's the Senior Vice President of Firefox at Mozilla. I chatted with him about the new browser and how much work went into retooling it. This is biggest leap in speed and performance and safety we've made in the browser in a decade, but it's actually just the beginning. You know, and for the super nerds, it's the, you know, we had to build a programming language to build a next generation web rendering engine, um, which ultimately then became the component that landed in Firefox. And that's what makes it exciting. And we kind of knew if we just ground through the hard work of, you know, 500 performance bugs, um, we could also get a big win. This was basically just hours and hours and hours sitting in a performance profiler looking for slow spots, finding them, opening a bug, having someone come in and pick that bug up and burn it down until the problem is gone, along with big technology bets that some of them for us were eight to 10 years in the making, right? The new style system engine that's, that ships um, really is the culmination of almost a decade of R&D for us. So for Mozilla, this release is a big deal. But one thing I find really cool and quirky about Firefox is how it's part of a nonprofit company. That's something Mark talks about, like a lot. I routinely will have you know a party conversation or a dinner conversation with somebody and I'll say, well, you know, who do you work for? What do you work on? And I'll say, yeah, I work on Firefox. I'm like, oh yeah, Firefox, Firefox. Um, like, how's it going for you guys? It becomes pretty obvious that the default assumption for any consumer is that Firefox must be made by just another big Silicon Valley software company. 
And I will often say, oh, we're a nonprofit, actually. It's so foreign to people that they almost can't get it at first interaction. Um, it's the core essence of who we are. It's our being, right? We're here to protect the internet. Like, we, we are the guardians of the web. Mark Mayo is the senior VP of Firefox at Mozilla. Listening through these stories, I'm struck by how they're all about heroes. Take Amanda for starts. She's on a crusade to reform terms of service that protect consumers and not businesses. Marcus's story is a cautionary tale of how even an internationally celebrated hero can take a fall. When it comes to deciding who gets to speak and who doesn't on the web, Graham over at Two Cows made a principled choice to not choose winners and losers. Not an easy decision. And frankly, it takes a bit of courage to send a troll a cake. Being able to laugh it off sometimes, that's just good therapy. Same for Troy Hunt. His satirical suggestion to add warning labels to IoT devices is so weirdly simple that we might actually see it come to pass. Finally, there's the Firefox team, who rebuilt their browser practically from scratch. Whatever browser you prefer to use, you have to hand it to anyone who decides to roll up their sleeves and start over. As for me and the rest of the IRL team, we're not starting over. We're going to keep on going. Season 2 launches Monday, January 8th. So come back in the new year and we'll pick up right from where we left off. I'm Veronica Belmont and I'll see you online until January 8th when I'll see you right back here, IRL. And are you a big Monopoly fan in general? Are you a, are you very good at it? Do you win a lot? <laughs> you know, I honestly haven't played since I was a kid, and I'm getting so many Monopoly questions. I wish I knew a lot more about it. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs>